Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. In this episode, we have a really fascinating conversation about some new research by the Health Foundation think tank, looking at patterns of illness in England by 2040. You may have seen the story about this on our website and national media last week, because the research predicts that by 2040, the number of people with major illness will rise by more than a third, which clearly has huge implications for general practice over the next two decades. Coming up, I'm speaking to Toby Watt, the lead economist at the Health Foundation's Real Centre and the lead author of this report. In this conversation, we look at what the report had to say about patterns of illness and why more people will be living for longer with a major condition, how this will affect workloads in general practice and what it means for the GP workforce and some of the things that the government will have to consider in future policies to meet this challenge. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Toby Watt, who is a lead economist at the Real Centre, which is part of the Health Foundation think tank. Over the last couple of years, Toby's been working in partnership with researchers at the University of Liverpool on assessing future healthcare demand, including how trends in non-communicable disease could play out in the coming years. The first results of this work is a report which looks at projected patterns of illness in England in 2040, which is what we're going to talk about today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Toby. Thank you for having me. First of all, can you explain the top line findings in this report? What did it show in terms of the rising numbers of people who are going to experience major illness? The headline results from the report are that we're going to see two and a half million more people living with major illness. And it's probably worth going into some detail later on about what that means specifically. But essentially, we're using administrative data and kind of modelling analysis to try and estimate the number of people that are going to be living with conditions that lead to high levels of of healthcare need. Looking at 20 different long-term illnesses we're seeing an increase in 19 of those 20. And that two and a half million growth in, in people living with major illness is an increase from about one in six to about one in five between 2019 and 2040. So over the course of 20 years. Which of the clinical areas would like to see the biggest rises in prevalence? The measure that we're using here is called the Cambridge Multimobility Score, which takes 20 of the most prevalent and kind of highest needs conditions all the way from hypertension atrial fibrillation to, at the top end, dementia, which is obviously a really high risk of of mortality and really high healthcare use. And it basically assesses each of the 20 conditions in terms of how much primary care they use, the likelihood of an emergency admission and increased mortality risk. The biggest growth we see across these conditions is in chronic pain and diabetes, and also really high levels of diagnosed anxiety and depression as well. The first two are increasing well over a million more cases of chronic pain and diabetes. These are conditions that predominantly are diagnosed and managed in primary care. So we're particularly concerned about that as a clinical area, but also people living with long-term conditions and multimobility uh, also have demands on community services and acute services as well. So it's really the whole of the NHS. One of the things that is interesting about this is lots of people will hear this and think, you know, there must be something we can do to prevent this. But one of the things that really comes across in the report is most of this is to do with the fact that people will be living longer. So how much of this sort of projected increase in morbidity can we actually prevent? It's a great question. So behind these results, there are kind of three really big things that are causing the numbers that we're seeing in the headline results. The first is that there is big demographic change happening. The ONS, the Office of National Statistics, does projections for the population. We believe that the population in England is going to increase by three and a half million people 
3.3 million of that is going to be over the age of 70, which relates to the coming of age or the, the movement into old age of the baby boomers. At the same time, and partly kind of driving that population change is that people are living longer, almost a year longer, or say slightly over a year longer uh, between 2019 and 2040. But we're projecting that the age at which people start to live with major illness, develop these conditions, stays the same. We believe this is related to the, the fact that the driver of that those improvements in life expectancy are kind of because of better management of conditions that already exist rather than better population health. But essentially, I think the main thing to take away is that 80% of the increase in diagnosed illness that we're projecting is relating to that demographic change, not people having higher levels of illness at given ages. So only 20% of that potentially could be prevented, but it doesn't mean that prevention's not important at all, does it? Because there is a role that prevention would play in potentially meaning people don't get so sick with these conditions. For certain. One of the great things about this modelling work is that we've moved away from projecting using just prevalence rates. Historically, people would say, okay, well, 10% of the population are living with diabetes. Uh, Last year, that's gone up to 11% a few years later. What we're doing now is we understand a lot more about the drivers of long-term illness and longevity with illness. Prevention is a particularly good thing because it delays illness, delays the onset, but also very often it will delay deaths for people living with those illnesses. What's crucial is that people, if they have the opportunity to develop illness later in life, will have much higher quality of life. They'll be able to contribute to the economy, spend time with loved ones, be more active, more enjoyment in their in their lives. So prevention is a really, really important process uh, and something that has huge benefits to the population, but doesn't automatically result in lower demand for health services. One of the other things the report highlights is, is that people are not just going to be living with one condition. What were the figures saying about the numbers of conditions, how many conditions they'll have as they're getting older? Looking across those 20 conditions, obviously, there are many, many more conditions that people can be living with for long periods of time. But these are just 20 key ones. The growth, as I, as I kind of mentioned, in chronic pain, diabetes, cancer as well, chronic kidney disease, COPD, heart failure, dementia, these are all growing. And they're all growing by more than 30% in terms of the numbers of people that will be living with them. And because of obviously what we know around the drivers of health and the drivers of of long-term illness, uh, people who develop one are likely to develop another. So these conditions tend to cluster and particularly at the moment, a 70-year-old on average has about three conditions, an 85-year-old has more than five. Obviously with more people living into those age groups, and with more long-term illness developing in those age groups, we're going to see more multimorbidity, so more complex care. And one of the things that's important is that a lot of the conditions that I've just mentioned affect different areas of the body. So they represent kind of complex multimorbidity in terms of the care that needs to be delivered. Obviously, if someone has many conditions related to cardiovascular disease, that's one specialist they need to see. But if it's diabetes, COPD, and cardiovascular disease, then the way that health service is delivered on a specialist basis means that there's a lot more complexity to managing that care. 
I'm sure that the way you've reached all these conclusions is very, very complex. But can you explain briefly sort of how you reached the findings? What sorts of data have you been looking at? And what are the kind of limitations of the things that you've been looking at? It's probably worth a slight disclaimer in that I've only been working with primary care data for a few years since the start of the pandemic. And actually, access to primary care data is really limited in the research spheres because of the way it's recorded and access issues. And that's one of the big things that's a vital contributor to how successful this work has been access to patient level primary care data linked to secondary care. So we can see complete patient histories more or less for the first time. So our understanding of, of diagnosed illness has, has moved away from just having to rely on what we call hospital episode statistics or secondary care data. An additional change that we've made to the way we model this is that we use microsimulation modeling, which is essentially you create a synthetic population that represents England. But what we do is we model for each of these 20 conditions, the rate of incidence for people of different ages, gender, different socioeconomic status, based on their local area. So obviously we don't know anything about income, we don't know anything about patients' work or anything, but we can kind of have measures and we see huge inequality in particularly in long-term illness in diagnosis based on socioeconomics, ethnicity as well. And then we basically run this synthetic population through the next 20 years of their lives, either developing further illness or dying and leaving the population we then add all that up at the end and you end up with a projected version of what could be the future population in England. But also, worth, I think you mentioned that we're doing this in partnership with the University of Liverpool and there's a team of epidemiologists who have built this microsimulation model over a decade. Uh, and there's lots of papers in the Lancet and the BMJ that can provide more details as well. So all of the data that goes into the projections that we've developed is based on the last 10 years. The results that we talk about in terms of the future are continuation of trends that we've seen in the past. I should say that the model also incorporates patient-level risk factors as well. So using trends in smoking and obesity, uh, they kind of feed into the rates of incidence that we're seeing. Um, and obviously, there's been big increases in, in rates of obesity that have kind of counteracted They've kind of fought against the relative improvements in things like blood pressure through pharmaceutical intervention and falling smoking rates as well. It's really fascinating stuff. You know, trends in obesity. Obviously, you said obesity is going up a lot. How is that affecting some of these figures that you've looked at? Trends in smoking recently have been kind of in it going in the positive direction, but obesity definitely not. Since the early 90s, obesity rates in the adult population in England have doubled from 15% to about 30%. A lot of the long-term health problems that we're seeing that are related to obesity are to do with managed care in primary care. Whilst increases in the rates of obesity have recently slightly slowed, what that doesn't take into account and what we try and take into account into this analysis is the lifetime risk of increasing levels of obesity. So if you think about big step changes in food environments between kind of the 80s and the 2010s, increases in the availability of really highly calorie-dense food and changes in rates of physical activity and, and general levels of activity that have kind of contributed to this growing levels of obesity. That big step change happened during the working life 
of a lot of the people who are kind of in their 60s and 70s now. By 2040, you'll have 50 and 60-year-olds who will have spent a greater portion of their lives living with obesity, which really compounds that additional risk to cardiovascular disease, to cancer, to the things that we know are related to obesity. And then this is up to 2040. It doesn't even take into account the issues around childhood obesity, which have grown hugely as well. So the starkness of the figures in this report really put it out there that we need more resourcing and investment in the delivery of care, but that prevention will have long-term payoffs. The political environment in which these decisions are made make that hard to take into account, but we definitely should be doing so. And the childhood obesity crisis is, is really an exemplar of, of those issues. Obviously, all of these conditions are things, most of these conditions are things that are going to be managed in primary care. There's likely to be a huge increase in workload for primary care. I was wondering if you, you've had any thoughts about that or the research looked at anything to do with that. So this report just covers levels of illness, not how that illness interacts with the system. I have been doing some other research that will build towards a report that we're doing next year that focuses on what this means specifically for kind of or an estimated number of additional appointments that we'll need, staff numbers as well, and funding naturally. But I think it's important to say that the future projections that we're seeing, that growth in demand, that growth in multimorbidity and long-term illness is a continuation of trends that have been happening for at least the last 10 years. Particularly over the last 10 years, we've seen really high increases in rates of diabetes, higher instances of cancer, of COPD, things that are managed in primary care, especially anxiety and depression. The rates of diagnosis of anxiety and depression have gone up quite a lot over the last 10 years. In that time, investment in primary care where a lot of this long-term illness is managed has been really weak. The number of full-time equivalent staff, GPs in primary care is lower now than it was in 2015. Over the course of the last 10, 12 years, we've had big increases in underlying demand that have kind of gone under the radar. It's not been noticed, obviously, for listeners and, and people working in general practice, they'll have, they'll have felt it for sure. But in terms of the, the metrics that we look at and the things that go into informing kind of investment in primary care, there's been a real disconnect. So the amount of underlying illness that's, that relies on primary care has gone up much faster than the rates of consultations have gone up staff numbers have stalled and investment has stalled. And so what we've seen is a big shift in case mix. We've seen an increase in the number of conditions that are covered within a single consultation. Um, all of these changes that, that primary care has, has undergone to basically adapt in the face of really growing demand and not, not sufficient increases in, in investment and resourcing in primary care. You said there that you're working on this report for next year. I think people who listen to this will be really interested in seeing that. Just as a thought, what do you think it means in terms of the amount of GPs we're going to need? Do you think we're going to need to expand the workforce more than we think we currently need to do? And how hard is that going to be? I think it depends a lot on how much we think we need to expand the GP workforce now. So the, the Health Foundation did some work last year setting out the pressures on GP workforce and the projected kind of shortfall. And we did that based on, it actually didn't use this analysis because this analysis wasn't ready, sadly, but there have certainly been growing pressures in, in primary care that we projected forwards and compared that to the level of staff that are being trained. So I mentioned 
the numbers of uh, full-time equivalent GPs has not grown. The, the the number of nurses in primary care also not very much, not meeting the, the growing demand pressures. So the long-term workforce plan has said that they will double the number of doctor training places, which is currently 7,500, changing to 15,000. But part of the problem is that general practice, because of persistent underfunding, has become a lot less of an attractive place to work, I think, one of the concerns. And so, especially over the next five years, before the long-term workforce plan kind of kicks into gear, the most important thing to focus on is retention and trying to make sure that the staff that we do have stay in general practice and help deliver kind of the care that's needed with this kind of growing demand that we've highlighted in this report. People are living for longer with a major illness. How do you think that might change the role of general practice? The major illness definition, which we've kind of come up with, it relates to the diagnosis of these 20 conditions. For example, one could be considered to have major illness, and this relates to how much people use primary care and how much people use the service. It's a lot, even with atrial fibrillation and diabetes. These are two conditions that don't particularly limit one's availability to work or have big impacts on people's quality of life. It does mean that they're in and out of, of primary care a lot. But, and so I think more and more primary care is going to be responsible for helping people live longer, kind of maximise quality of life for people living with, with multiple long-term conditions. And I think in order to deliver that, we need to get more serious about making sure that the right resources are going into the right places to help manage that care. There is evidence that continuity, as well as building evidence, that continuity of care is much better for people, particularly people with long-term conditions and helping people to live for longer. Do you think that's going to become more important as we start to see growing numbers of people experiencing ill health for longer? For sure. So the long-term workforce plan only works if you have effective retention and continuity of care, which we know improves quality of care, is only possible with retention. So that kind of heightens it as a major issue going forward. One of the other things that the report mentions that's worth bringing in here as well is that at the same time as you've got all these people living with illness increasing at quite a significant rate, the working age population is only going to be increasing by around 4%. So that's obviously got really big implications in terms of generating revenue from tax to pay for public services, including the NHS. This is all really big stuff that the government's going to have to grapple with. What sort of policy issues are this and sort of successive governments going to have to look at over the next 20 years to deal with all of this? There are two things that are worth adding to that. The first is this two and a half million increase in, in patients living with combinations of long-term conditions and major illnesses. It sounds like a big number, it's a 37% increase, but it is happening over the course of 20 years. So there is ample time to train staff to invest in, in primary care and other care services. The second thing that's worth noting is that that 4% increase in the working age population doesn't, isn't just about government revenue, it's not just about kind of taxes, it's about delivering care. The working age population are responsible for delivering the care, for working in primary care as you know, allied health professionals or delivering direct care. So that's a concern as well. It's not just about financial resourcing and the tough decisions related to that, but also making sure we've got staff to deliver that care. 
The report also highlights that that dealing with this issue, it's not just going to be the NHS that has to deal with it. There's also big implications for things like social care, obviously, which we've not talked about, uh, and housing. Do you think this is going to need sort of cross-government approach to, to dealing with it? Yes, for sure. I've kind of thought this for a long time. I think the way investment decisions have happened in the health service, it basically mostly relates to the strength of the economy and the politics of the government that are in charge, not what it should be, which is what are the levels of demand and how are they changing and and where does care need to be delivered. If we can move to a situation where the kind of long-term evidence of the kind that we've presented in this report can be used to inform those decisions, I think we'll be a lot better off. Social care is a perfect example of, of this because it's just kind of been ignored and passed around as a as a political football for ages. We need cross-party consensus in order to basically stop that from happening and get some sensible long-term decisions made about how to manage growing demand for social care and other public services. This is only part of a, a series of bits of work. As you, you mentioned, the report's coming out next year, but you're also going to be looking at health inequalities in a similar report to this in the autumn. What's the aim with all of this? Is it to, to put together the evidence to help policymakers formulate plans for the future? You know, what, as you were talking there, is that what you're hoping to achieve with all of this? Yeah, and that's a, a really important step. And partly, actually, why we separated the report out into chunks is to, is to make it more manageable. The Health Foundation and other kind of public commentators have been talking about about health spending as something that has grown and is likely to need to grow into the future. But without that kind of detail on who's being affected, how they're being affected and what that means for resourcing and not just funding, I think hopefully it will help decision makers just get sensible about what the pressures are, where the resourcing needs to go. And so plans can be set well in advance because I think a lot of reactionary decision making around growing demand for health is hugely inefficient. This kind of the feast and famine of investing in the NHS, not investing in it and creates inefficiency and better long term planning will just, I think, be hugely helpful. And can you say anything now about what the health inequalities thing is going to be looking at? Is it going to be looking at similar things to this? We know that there are huge differences in life expectancy between the most and the least deprived people living in England, it's between nine and 10 years. That's kind of hidden in this report because we're talking about average levels of illness. We're talking about the numbers of people overall uh, living with with long-term conditions. We don't just see inequalities in life expectancy, but we see really big inequalities in the age at which people are getting diagnosed with all 20 of these conditions. It's not just a few of them. And you can see inequalities in diagnosed health outcomes starting really, really young as well. In young adults and young working age people, it's anxiety and depression, it's chronic pain, it's diagnosed alcohol problems in primary care. It then kind of morphs as people get older to physical. So it shifts to the metabolic system. You see growing inequality in diabetes in COPD into the late working age, kind of 50s, 60s, cardiovascular disease, and then ultimately cancer and dementia. So the health inequalities that we see, they kind of permeate all conditions and they permeate all the way through the life course. More information on that, particularly the fact that the inequalities are kind of entrenched and the projections for 
how those are likely to change is not an exciting prospect because not much has gone into addressing health inequality in the last 10 years. So we can't project that that's, that's going to happen in the next 10 either. It's kind of a message that we need to act. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Toby, and explaining all this data so clearly and, and, and you know how we need to make use of it to plan for the future. It's really interesting and important work and we'll definitely be looking out for those other Health Foundation pieces of work later this year and next year. I look forward to that. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Toby for taking the time to talk to me. I'm back next week when I'm speaking to former NICE chair and former GP, Professor Sir David Haslam, about how we fix the NHS in a conversation that will also pick up on some of the themes that we've been talking about today. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news from the world of general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 